Favorite Theorem, the math podcast with no quiz at the end. I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida, and I am joined by my other host. Hi, I'm Evelyn Lamb, a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah, where we just got a lovely uh, few inches of snow last night. So I've developed a theory that podcasts cause snow here although it could be the other way maybe snow causes podcasts maybe it's hard to tell i don't know it's it's uh, it's, it's it's uh 85 degrees here today sorry yeah i i, I meant to say don't <laughs> tell me what the weather is in florida it's very nice it, it's too yeah. painful it, it's very nice yeah speaking of painful uh, we were having our pre uh banter about i had a little hand surgery yesterday and i have this ridiculous wrap on my right hand and it's making me kind of useless today so i'm, I'm having to do everything yeah. left-handed i'm having to control everything on the computer left-handed but uh It'll, it'll, it'll resolve my issue in my finger. That'll be good. So anyway, yeah. uh, today we are pleased to welcome uh, Dave Kung. Dave, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi there. I'm Dave Kung. I'm a mathematician uh, by training. I spent 21 years at St. Mary's College of Maryland, and I've recently moved on from there. And I work at the Dana Center, the Charles A. Dana Center at the University of Texas at Austin. I work with uh, Uri Treisman down there on math ed policy. It's very cool. So you got a really serious taco upgrade. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I'm still living in Maryland, but uh, I get to visit uh, Texas uh, every, I don't know, every few months. Mm -hmm. Are you going to relocate there or are you just going to stay in Maryland? I'll be here for now. Yeah. 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 I mean, it seems like the sort of work that, that you could do remotely. It's policy work mostly, right? A lot of policy work. Um, there's going to be a fair amount of travel once that's more of a thing. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. But uh, but not all of it will be to to Texas. You know, some of it will actually be in D.C. In which case, I'm I'm pretty close. Yeah, sure. you're right there. Yeah, yeah. Well, they do really great work at the Dana Center. Uh, a lot. Of, I, I've been involved a little bit with the Math Pathways business, and uh, it's it, it is really vital stuff. And of course, Uri is like a well, he's a Pied Piper or something else. I don't know. But when when you hear him it's talk a, about it, you, he's an evangelist. You really. You can't help but, he but is. like him, yeah. And making sure that we, you know that students have the right math at the right time with the right supports. It's uh, it's it's a we're far from that goal right now, but we can get closer. That's true. Yeah, very important work for uh, all mathematicians to care about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, but I think we're going to talk a little bit higher level than math pathways today. So, so we asked you on to have a favorite theorem. What is it? Um, my favorite theorem is the Bonnach-Tarski theorem, which is usually labeled the Bonnach-Tarski paradox. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it let's, is. Let, 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 let's hear it. Well, let's, let's let our listeners know. So the Bonnach-Tarski paradox says the following thing, that you can take a ball, think of a sort of a, a solid ball, um, and you can split it up into a, a finite number of pieces. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to that word pieces in a, in a bit. But you yeah. can split it up into a finite number of pieces and then just move those pieces and end up with two balls the same size and the same shape as the original. It is incredibly paradoxical. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, I remember hearing this theorem a long time ago, and I just it just sort of blew my mind. Yeah, that it was one, I think I was an undergraduate. I don't think I'd even taken like a real analysis class, but I heard about this and read this book. There's this book about it that I think it's called The Pea and the Sun, because another statement of, I mean, once you can make two of the same size things out of one, you can make kind of anything out of anything. You could just um, repeat that process. And, and that's, yeah. Yeah, that's that's mm -hmm. the other statement. You take a P and you do it enough times. And if you do it well, you can reassemble them to form a, a sun. Yeah. It, absurd. It just, mm -hmm. Yeah. It, I just, I mean, reading it, I did. It, there's a lot that went over my head at the time because of like what my mathematical background was, but like, I, 
at first I was like, okay, this means that math is irrevocably broken. And then after actually reading, it's like, okay, it, it doesn't mean math is broken. So maybe, maybe you should talk a little more about why it doesn't mean math is broken. If so, you have that perspective, maybe you do think math is broken. <laughs> it certainly feels like, I mean, I think my first reaction was cool. Let's do that with gold, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, we'll just take a small piece of gold and split it up and keep doing that. Um, it, I think there's a lot in this theorem, right? And so, mm -hmm. I mean, it's one thing to understand it sort of at a deep sense why it's not absurd. Mm -hmm. And I think it helps me to think about just sort of, uh, you know, once you know a little bit about infinity and the fact that there are different sizes of infinity, and once you know that like, you know, the somehow the even numbers, like the even integers have the same size as all of the integers, which is already sort of weird, mm -hmm. but yeah. this feels like a little bit like that. I mean, you could sort of somehow take the odd integers and the even integers, and each one of those is the same size as the full, integer, you know, full integers, but some of the integers themselves, like are, it's weird to be able to split the integers up into two things which are the same size of, as itself, right? Sure. Right. And so, at the fundamentally, this is about infinity. Mm -hmm. um, and and the reason this is a little bit more than that. Well, first of all, um, obviously the, the the ball here is not countable, right? We're not dealing right. with a countable number of points. This is uncountable. So now we're talking about the continuum in terms of the the cardinality of the points. But I think then the surprising thing is that it works out geometrically. Right? right, so it's not just about cardinality, but you can do this geometrically, and so you can actually define these sets. Um, and I, I'm, you know, there's doing a, the word pieces when we say you can <laughs> yeah. split it up into a number, find a number of pieces. And I think the the record is somewhere under ten pieces. Yeah, um, I, it might be just like five or something. Yeah, it, it's, I, it's down been there. a while. Yeah. But the word pieces is doing a whole lot of work in that, in yes. that statement. Um, and these pieces are not something you could ever do with like a knife and fork or, def, you know, even define easily. Um, it, you know, it requires the axiom of choice to define these pieces. Uh -oh. And so, uh, so like it's, it's really high level mathematics to understand how to do these pieces. But the fact that you could do these pieces um, and, and then geometrically it works to just reassemble them, to just rotate and translate these pieces and get back, you know, two balls the size of the original. Is, that's just, it's, it's astonishing. Yeah, that is, that's why I've always had a problem with this. I mean, I, I, I can read it and understand it and go, yes, the, you know, you can follow every logical step, but you're right, it doesn't work visually if you think about it. So, so can you describe these pieces at all? Do they... <laughs> um, uh, they are screwed up. So um, yeah. the, the analogy I, I like to make is, um, you know, if you were working on the interval from zero to one, mm -hmm. you know, so first of all, the Bonnik-Tarski paradox does not work in, in, in one dimension. But in terms mm -hmm. of these pieces, um, if you're thinking about the, the interval from zero to one, you could think of the rational numbers as a piece mm -hmm. of that, mm -hmm. right? And right. so uh, it's a piece in the sense that it's part of the whole. It's not mm -hmm. a piece in the sense that you could cut it out with a butter knife or you could model right. this with a stick of butter sure. or something like right. that, right? You have to hit one half, one third, you know, two thirds. You have to hit, you know, 97, 100 firsts in there, right? Mm -hmm. All of those are rational numbers, but you can certainly think of all of the rational points in the interval from zero to one as a single piece, mm -hmm. or you can talk about them, you can define them, and then you can talk about moving them. And so you can think about it that way, right? So you have all those rational numbers, and you can think of that as one piece. Mm -hmm. um, and it certainly is a lot more complicated than that. Um, you know, when you think about Bonnak Tarski, like one of the things I, I love to do is, is with students is to go back and think about what it would mean for a set to be non-measurable. 
right? right? So we can measure things like intervals, right? Mm -hmm. But it doesn't take too much mathematics to sort of dive into the fact that there have to be sets. If, if you have a sense of measure, which mm -hmm. like works on intervals and things like that, and you want it to have other properties, like when you take two disjoint sets, the measure of the two mm -hmm. disjoint sets together should be the sum of the two measures, like mm -hmm. really basic properties. It doesn't take too much to be able to prove that there are sets that are non-measurable, right. right? And once you can prove that like, oh, then, then the world gets really screwed up because yeah. like in the world and our everyday living, like everything seems measurable in some sense. Like even, even if you have like some screwed up sculpture, you can measure its volume. You like dunk it in water and see how yeah. much the water level rises, <laughs> right, right? Right, right? I mean, it is, it has a measure. And the idea that there is no way to measure something is just incredibly counterintuitive. But once mm -hmm. you get that, then it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit more of a leap, but to, to understand at a fundamental level that you can define pieces that are so screwed up that you could just rearrange them and get two copies of the original. It's, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting that you, when you first uh, introduced this, you said it's something about infinity. And I remember what, so now I'm thinking I might've taken a real analysis class before I had read this book, because I remember when I read the book thinking, oh, this is telling me something about non-measurability and like really giving me a concept of like, what non-measurability does to things mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that's that's how i viewed it it's like a statement about how important measurability is and, and just to just to be really clear if these pieces were measurable right. <laughs> then we they would just have some volume or something like that and there's no way to double the volume right and right. so you yeah. can't you, you just can't do that right so clearly these pieces have at least some of them have to be non-measurable right mm -hmm. so so much for your alchemy idea right <laughs> yeah right right no more doing this with gold okay yeah and it, it also it won't work on atoms yeah <laughs> right it, uh, there's this fundamental idea that permeates mathematics that we can continue to divide things right mm -hmm. um you can get things as small as you want you see this this is basically what calculus is all based on right sure. infinitesimally small things right and and it's just a reminder that the, the real world does not work like that. You, mm -hmm. you, you take a gold atoms, you, you could keep splitting something up, and, but eventually you're at one gold atom in each piece and like, you can't go any smaller than that. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Well, you could, but then you don't have gold. <laughs> it wouldn't be gold anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. right. So, so what, I, you've sort of hinted at this, but why do you love this theorem so much? Um, I love that it makes you question so many things. I, I mean, mm -hmm. I love paradoxes in general, right? Mm -hmm. Paradoxes are these moments when there's uh, there's so much cognitive conflict going on, cognitive dissonance, mm -hmm. that it forces you, in order to resolve that cognitive dissonance, you have, really have to question some other fundamental aspect of the world, mm -hmm. right? So it's something that you were thinking before is not true, <laughs> <laughs> Or, or this paradox is like totally crap, right? right? So something like that. But in this case, like the, the theorem is true, right? The, mm -hmm. the Bonnick-Tarski paradox is true. Uh, and so it forces you to just go back and question some fundamental ideas about the world, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I love that there are statements like that, that that can force you to go back and question so many things. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I think we as humans need to do better at this. Like there are so many things that we just accept as as you know, we take for granted right. and we take them for granted as if they are true, like with a capital T, right? Mm -hmm. And in this case, it's about like, you can measure all things, but of course in our, in our everyday lives, it's things about the world. It's things about people. It's things about politics. It's mm -hmm. things about, you know, topical issues, right? And we grow up and it's so normal that we think these things are just part of the world with a capital T on truth. 
And I love those moments that force us to go back and question those, those fundamental truths, which all of a sudden turn out to be assumptions, some of which may not be right, or some yeah. of which we might want to reassess. So maybe you're arguing that we should study more mathematics to make the world better. Like, to, 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 <laughs> we, to, we certainly, certainly should do that, Kevin. To, to, yeah. to, to build a better citizenry, right? This is... <laughs> all right. We, um, we certainly, if we all understood mathematics better, we would have been better off during this pandemic. That's certainly true. Uh, oh, I, I have a question. Do, so as you, you mentioned, this is called a paradox often. Do you think it is a paradox? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, the paradox has a couple of different meanings. One is sort of this deep philosophical meaning, mm -hmm. like, is it really something which is somehow both true and false simultaneously? And, and this is not, in that sense, a paradox. It is a paradox in the sort of weaker, sort of more everyday sense of that word, where it, it really throws us into, into some cognitive dissonance that, uh, that forces us to question other things. We, we can't hold both true that like everything can be measurable and things have volume, and you can take a ball, split it into six pieces, rearrange them and get two balls. Like those are fundamentally in conflict, and one of them has to go. Mm -hmm. It does rely on choice, though, right? So there's there's something to argue about there. Uh, you know, there are those people who deny the axiom of choice. Um, uh, but then yeah, they there are but, few and far between in the math community, but they, uh, but they are out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they are not measure zero, so to speak. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the yeah, so it does it does use the axiom of choice. So this idea that you can you know you can make infinitely many choices. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 you can see in the proof where you have to do that, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to you end up with uncountably many sets, and you choose one uh, one point from each one of those uncountably many sets, right. and that's part of the way you get one of the sets that that creates the the Bonnach-Tarski paradox. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I guess I'm a little surprised that the Bonnach-Tarski paradox hasn't made more people reject the axiom of choice. You say like, okay, well, clearly you can't do this. So therefore, what is this relying on? Well, it's relying on the axiom of choice. Well, there's a lot of things about like that. They're like the ticket off product theorem, right? So, so that's equivalent to the axiom of choice. So do you want your product of compact spaces to be compact or not? You know, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yes, it, uh, I think Evelyn, you're 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 hitting upon this fundamental thing at a very deep level. Math gets weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, and you can have things. I mean, you see that in in um, you know in Gödel's work. You see, like, mm -hmm. well, is that true? Well, you know, it can either be true or false. What's your pleasure today? Right. We can yeah. either add it to the axioms or we can reject it, and and mm -hmm. fundamentally, it kind of doesn't matter. But you know, go ahead. Yeah. Like, is well, there an infinity between the yeah <laughs> between uh, you know the the integers and the real line? Like, oh, you know, take your take your pick. Yeah. yeah, what seems more more useful to you right now, or what sounds like more fun to play with? Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And in some sense, that that is kind of the beauty of math, because so much of what mathematicians do is based on like wherever you want to start, right? Mm -hmm. It's theoretical, like oh, well, if we start here, this is where we get, and if we mm -hmm. start in a different place, we get this other thing. And so you know, you can hold those both in your head, despite the fact that maybe you can't have to hold them simultaneously. Like you know, either the axiom of choice that you take it to be true or you take it to be false, but you can't take it to really be both right mm -hmm. then things break down but mm -hmm. you can you can do a lot of mathematics either way mm -hmm. yeah so another thing we like to do on this podcast is invite our guests to uh pair their theorem with something so uh I, i'm curious what have you chosen to pair with uh, this this paradox 
So uh, there's this piece that I played, uh, I think I first played this when I was in high school. It's a, I'm a violinist, and Evelyn and I share this as string players. Um, but uh, it's called the Enigma Variations. It's by Edward Elgar. Mm. Um, and it's a really interesting piece with sort of a, a fascinating story behind it. And, mm -hmm. and the story tells, sort of explains the name Enigma. So the idea is that Edward Elgar was sitting there and he had, he like he played this little melody and he was sitting at the keyboard. Uh, this is like in 1898, 18, late, late uh, 19th century. Um, and he started riffing on this on this melody. Right. And he's like, oh, OK, like we could play it this way or this way. And then he started like putting names on it like, oh, my friend would play it in this way or like, you know, my mm -hmm. wife, she would play it in this way. Mm -hmm. um, and then he sort of just kept taking that further and further, and he ended up writing a bunch of different movements based on how different people in his life he imagined would play this this uh, you know this particular melody. Mm. And one of the uh, it's sort of ingenious if you want something to go viral, I guess. But he never he never lays out what the what the melody was, right? And so that's the enigma part of it, mm. right? Somehow out out there somewhere is this uh, this melody, and all you're hearing is different people's take on it. Um, and he does tell you who the people are. And so uh, some of these movements have initials telling you who some of them are more explicit with names. Um, but all you have is that, right? And it's beautiful music. And when you listen to it, um, you know, some of the some of the movements are really fast and, and uh, you know, and loud and, and really exciting. And others are just incredibly slow and languishing. Um, and um, and it's hard to imagine that all of that could sort of, in some sense, be based on a, a single melody, mm. and and somehow it is. So do that's you, the that's what I'd like to pair it with the Enigma variation. Do, do you have a favorite so that we can insert a, a clip? Um, uh, let's see. Um, I do. So um, mm -hmm. probably the most famous of these is is called Nimrod. It's okay. an incredibly slow um, movement. Um, I've played it a bunch of times. It's the sort of thing that. Um, you know, if you want to get people to cry in a movie, you could you yeah. play a little bit of Nimrod. <laughs> and uh, I don't think I've ever successfully been on stage playing this without crying. Right. It, it is that emotional. Okay. Um, and it's also it, it's some for me, it's more emotional if you play it slower. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, it's a yeah, incredibly evocative. piece. play i do i do um well in theory and we're in this <laughs> pandemic where i haven't gotten to play much um but yeah i play in a in a local community orchestra and, oh, I, and I play with my daughter and um yeah i've had some had some fun over during the pandemic by myself playing uh, picking up some old pieces and, and playing them hmm. yeah very cool yeah i i was i was thinking like it, probably everyone has heard nimrod without realizing it because 
it's in the background. If it's not Adagio for strings, it's Nimrod <laughs> in the background of that, you know, swelling emotional scene, or, you know, a farewell or someone's dying or whatever that, you know, it's there. And when you hear it, you can hear little hints of sort of uh, pomp and circumstance, which we hear, mm. you know, all the time, mm -hmm. uh, you know, during graduations. Um, and so you can see like, yeah, those are, those are similar sort of in structure in, in the, in the, the, uh, the melodies and the harmonies and how they fit together. Right. Plus it's public domain by this point. So you can just throw it into movies pretty easily. Right. That's yeah. true too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess you're, you're the practical one. Like... <laughs> yeah. That's important when you're doing things like podcasts. Yeah. 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 All right. So, um, that's a really good pairing. I like that a lot. So we, we also like to give our guests a chance to um, promote anything they want to promote. So so we've talked about the Dana Center a little bit. Any Anything you want to pitch? Um, where can we find you online? Um, you can find me at the at the, Dana, the Charles Dana Center. It's uh, utdanacenter.com, um, I, I think, maybe .edu. Mm. I'm not sure, actually. Yeah. Um, but it's a pretty easy web search to, mm -hmm. to find us. Um, you know, we are trying to make sure that mathematicians, uh, that, that like everybody has an opportunity to see themselves as a mathematician, mm -hmm. right? And that everybody has access to the right math for them at the right time with the right supports. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so much of the math community, so much of our curriculum is is grounded in um, in things that are really old, like the, mm -hmm. the algebra, geometry, algebra two sequence was decided in 1892 by, you know, a group mm -hmm. of uh, 10 white men in the Northeast, right, who decided that that would be the right thing. Right. Um, and this focus on calculus, you know, mm -hmm. comes out of the Cold War, it comes out of the need to produce a small number of engineers who are going to, you know, work pencil and paper, and then with massive computers that they could program uh, <laughs> to win the Cold War, to beat the Soviets into space and, and, mm -hmm. and to do all of that. You know, that's no longer the world we live in. And we need to expand what we think of as mathematics. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's not that calculus isn't important, it still is but maybe not sending everybody in that direction would be better, right? And so mm -hmm. some students were much better off if they took statistics. Mm -hmm. um, other students, quantitative literacy would be great. We're, we're swimming in, a, in so much data we don't know what to do with, and there, you know, the, the careers out there that deal with data are taking off like you wouldn't believe. Like, what are the tools we need to give students um, so that they can deal with that? Yeah. Right. So all of these things are just updates that we need to do for our math curriculum and, and updating a system that's so complicated with so many moving parts is difficult. And so that that's part of what we work on at the Dana Center. And if anybody's out there who wants to help work on those things and at the same time, make sure all of these systems are equitable because we know they haven't been in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, make sure all students have access to, to high quality math instruction independent of you know, your zip code or, you know, who your parents are, your economic circumstances. Mm -hmm. Those are the sorts of things that we work on at the Dana Center. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important work. I mean, you, it's it's funny. It's funny to hear you talk about this because. I've been saying the same thing, you know, the, the math degree that we still give out more or less is what I got 30 years ago, which isn't different than what they were handing out 30 years before that. I mean, it, things have changed and, and yeah. we're, we're still sort of stuck that way. It's, it's unfortunate. And they're still doing it in the high schools. You know, my son, when he was going through high school, they just marched him in lockstep through algebra, geometry, you know, and, uh, you know, he's a musician. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. great, you know, it's good for him, but 
know. And even even some of these topics that that are still important, like I I think algebraic thinking is still important. Sure. And I think a lot of people do algebraic thinking out there all the time. It's just that it's not pencil and paper. It's not mm -hmm. symbol manipulation. The most popular place that people use their algebraic thinking is when they're working with spreadsheets, mm -hmm. right? Writing formulas in spreadsheets is incredibly algebraic. Like you have these placeholders that are really just variables. Things change. Some things stay the same. It's highly algebraic. And we could be teaching algebra using that so that everybody, student, every student coming out of algebra would have a, a you know, basis for understanding how algebra is going to be used. Mm -hmm. you know, it's something like 98% of employers want their employees to be able to use spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a perfect example. We could, we could tweak the curriculum to take something that right now is seen as kind of useless and make it very useful and, and in fact, vital, right? And it's still teaching essentially the same core ideas, but it's really mm -hmm. approaching them from a very different perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right. And as long as you give me the space, Kevin, you know, we yeah. were talking about about mathematics and music. So I have to mm -hmm. I have to take a little space. I, I did this this uh, set of 12 lectures for the great courses on right. math and music. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, a sort of a tour through through the listening uh, of, of music. So like when when we record something and that music eventually gets into your ear, like every step on that process involves mathematics. Mm -hmm. um, and over the course of 12 lectures, you know, we talk about rhythm, we talk about harmonics, we talk about tuning, um, we talk about lots of, we, we even talk about sort of the digital side of it, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a ton of mathematics that goes into CDs. There's a lot of mathematics that goes into compression that we're using now so that we can, you know, actually mm -hmm. hear each other from this far away. Mm -hmm. um, and all of that, there's just lots of mathematics embedded in that. Yeah. And so it's uh, really fun. It was a, a just a real honor to be able to do that series. Um, so you can find that out there in the great courses. Yeah. Do, do you talk about why you can't have perfect tuning on a piano or anything like that? Or, yeah. Or? Yeah. In fact, I like I got to demonstrate tuning. Right. So mm. I, I, they had they brought in a, a, a baby grand for me to do this on. Mm. And so like, you know, we tuned an octave and I, like I pull it out of tune a little bit and you could mm. hear the beats. Right. Again, like these things that I saw in high school in a in a trig class, mm -hmm. but I had no idea they were applicable. Right. So, <laughs> I mean, you can actually hear, in, you know, this their um, you know, their trig identities that tell you if you play two notes that have really similar frequency, that's kind of equivalent to something that goes wah, 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 wah. Mm -hmm. It has mm -hmm. beats in it and you could actually do that. And so I like played that and, and like tuned it so that was perfect. And then I took a fifth and we did the mm -hmm. mathematics to figure out if you want everything to be sort of in tune, how out of tune do your fifths need to be? Right. Which is yeah. a you know fascinating thing. And I know Evelyn, you've written you've written about this. Mm -hmm. what, what was the column called? Like the saddest thing you know about the natural numbers? Yeah, yeah, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> like three is not it a is. power of two, or something, yeah, or something, it is something like that. So sad. Right. <laughs> it right. is sad, and and you know, there's mathematical facts at the heart of that, and so much that we hear in music. Um, and it's and it's really um, you know I, I get notes uh, every week from somebody who has you know had these sort of nagging questions in the back of their head about how music and math are related and mm -hmm. and they you know they watch these twelve lectures and they're just so thrilled to sort of unpack some of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. Yeah, it it's neat and it it's also it's not just like the sound waves and the math which, which you know. I guess it's definitely part of it, but there's also this extra perception in our ears and our brains that is involved and has some math, but then has some basically, I don't know, wizardry that our brains do to be like, oh, 
I, when I hear this kind of thing, I often hear this kind of thing with it. So it probably came together. I just missed something there. <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole section really of auditory illusions, which are really fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. Ways yeah. in which our brain can trick itself or, or like, because it's been useful in the past, like our brain does certain things. Um, and, and that's what they, <laughs> and so you can intentionally use that to have these auditory illusions, which are really just fascinating. Mm -hmm. And like my favorite fact about this is that, is that essentially your ear is doing, uh, I mean, is doing a Fourier transform. Mm -hmm. When you are listening, your ear is doing this Fourier transform and, you know, just sort of physically doing it, right? Yeah. And breaking down a sound into its, it, in its constituent frequencies. And that is just a phenomenally cool idea. That yeah. our brains are that sophisticated. That's, you know, our, yeah, our yeah. brain somehow involve, evolved yeah. to do something that we didn't describe mathematically until mm -hmm. the 19th century, right? right. right. <laughs> like, oh, now we know what our brains like to just sort of by, you know, random chance and, and mm -hmm. like, yeah. <laughs> and little tweaks to you know, random changes in a DNA sequence. And somehow we got to like, oh, oh, yeah, and that's now called a Fourier transform. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, all right. That is a lot of fun. I, I feel yeah. like we, we could almost do a, a whole nother podcast episode about <laughs> one of these facts. Probably. That'd be so much fun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll have you back for a part two sometime. So uh, <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Well, this has been great fun, Dave. Uh, I'm surprised uh, Bonak Tarski made it this long without being somebody's favorite. So this is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> we, we've had we've had repeats before, but but this one I'm surprised. So uh, thanks for joining us and uh, yeah thank you thank you guys so much I, I yeah. love the work that you do and I really appreciate it thanks thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lee the music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida they are Blake Crawford Gus Knudsen Del Mitchell and Bao Chan Nguyen you can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpkinnison.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at nivicnazdunk, that's Kevin spelled backwards, followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M. That's at my favorite theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics. <laughs>